For August 23rd, 2010, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 112, Sylvester Stallone's Improv Comedy Night. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Nearly dry after accidentally falling into a lake this weekend. I am your host, Matthew Rather, from Los Angeles, here to overthink The Expendables. That's right, we are spending an episode on uh, on the Sylvester Stallone uh, et alia uh, action extravaganza, uh, which was the number one movie at the box office last week. And uh, so let's launch right into it with the question of the week. What island nation would you, what island nation government would you like to overthrow? Uh, in honor of the Expendables, what island nation government would you like to overthrow? If you're playing the Overthinking It podcast drinking game, and I know I am, uh, drink now because someone is before Fenzel in the alphabet. It is Matthew Berlinke. Sorry, Pete. It, it really, one day I'm going to get my name legally changed just to annoy you less when I attend the podcast. <laughs> um, I was thinking I would uh, actually take the low-hanging fruit and go with Manhattan Island. Which is is a nation for all intents and purposes, but then I was actually thinking that it's it's kind of a pain in the neck to overthrow it because then you've got to figure out uh, how to get the T train built. You have to you, you you have to figure out whether that pedestrian uh, walkway in Times Square is a good idea. Whether it is it is congestion pricing when you also a good downtown. idea. And then I don't even want to touch the uh, the JCC for Muslims they want to build in Lower Manhattan. So I'm saying overthrowing the government and Manhattan is really not worth the trouble. Uh, I'm going to go with Coney Island, which I think would be a lot more fun <laughs> to be the ruler of, to be the the, the despotic, uh, uh, the, the, the generalissimo of, if you will. Uh, I just like pretty much like sit on top of the Ferris wheel and like issue uh, edicts about like the price of hot dogs and cotton candy. Uh, and then anyone who wanted to overthrow me would have to defeat me at Dance Dance Revolution, which is actually uh, sort of my Achilles heel, so probably not a good policy. Um, I'm <laughs> not, not much of a Dance Dance Revolutioner. I'm more of a karaoke revolutioner. Revolutionary, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very good to have you on the, uh, on the show, Matt. You don't come on nearly enough. I know, I know. I love you guys, though. Oh, thanks. <laughs> glad, you're, glad you're a fan. Uh, Peter Fenzel is on his cell phone. Pete, how is uh, yo? How is the um, uh, uh the Pete aid, the uh, natural disaster relief? Oh, it's doing great. I have two more weeks before I move out of my basement and into a new apartment in scenic Davis Square, Somerville, Massachusetts, where I'll be broadcasting from a comfortable fifteen feet above ground level. Uh, in a second, or something along those lines, probably closer to 12, depending upon how high the bed is off the ground. Uh, so yeah, so then you can't make fun of me for having a dank basement full of root beer cans anymore. It will be a comfortable, cozy second floor bedroom full of root beer cans. It may or may not be dank. We have yet to determine this in our practical experience. But you'll have a dank so, basement uh, of the mind full of root beer cans of the mind, won't you? Exactly. You know what they say, like, uh... Uh, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of dank basement. Oh, I thought what they say Wait, is, no, they don't is, say that. is you can take the peat out of the basement, but you can't take the bit. Uh... <laughs> this is, you know what, this is just helping me left and right on this one. I'm sure all of our, all of our listeners are swooning right now at the prospect of the brilliant success that is my life. 
but anyway, um, I would say that I would take, I would bring to bear the full force of arms to dismantle that once proud and now uh, abomination uh, of an institution that is the Island Def Jam Music Group. Uh, which ever since his acquisition, <laughs> ever since his acquisition by Universal, uh, has become a hot mess. Uh, like, oh, we want Mercury Records, we don't want Mercury Records. Oh, we're Island. Oh, we're Def Jam. Oh no, we're Booty J Records for J Lo. Like, maybe we have Ghostface Killer. Like, maybe we don't. Uh, it, it's it's a it's a huge huge disaster, uh, and it's 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 desperately uh, through shuffling the cards will probably be and is ripe for uh, some sort of um, coup uh, that will perhaps take place involving me, and I'll probably just put the brothers' chaps in charge of it so that they can just make a whole bunch of strong, bad albums, because that's what I would love to listen to right now. <laughs> uh, and then in Ghostface Killer. I would create, I'd use it to create a co- comical series of crossovers for my own amusement. I would turn it into more of a, ma- a manorial system where the artists exist as, as, as uh, vassals. To the uh, to the leadership and offer services in exchange for for faithful protection from other uh, records. I feel like this could lead to a bright new tomorrow for what is now a bloated and decadent uh, uh, cultural wasteland. And Pete, I want to I want to oh, apologize pub- publicly. I did not mean to imply uh, that your life was a waste. In fact, I think these challenges are like uh, are like uh, Philadelphia Museum steps, uh, which you will um, which you will surmount <laughs> and jump up and down your arms uh, your arms in the air in, in triumph. Uh, I, I think only great only greater things uh, ever greater things await you. Well, I appreciate that. I will say that maybe if I seem a little cranky, it's just because I've just biked home in the rain after seeing the Expendables at the latest possible show that I could manage to see them before the podcast. Right. So, uh, so I've got to shake the rain off of myself, and I'm getting some some hot dinner uh, after this podcast is over. That's for sure. Excellent. Uh, Mark Lee is is in from Brooklyn. Hey, Mark, what island do you want to hey, overthrow? You you missed the excellent segue opportunity. Speaking of hot dinner. <laughs> I actually have no idea what that would have led to, but I thought that would have been funny if you did that anyway. Is, is that your new nickname, Mark? Are we going to call you Hot Dinner? <laughs> please, would, yeah. please do. Okay. <laughs> My first thought was like, similar to Belinky, in sort of an East Coast, Tri-State area thing, and suggest for the overtaking of Long Island, uh, New York City's embarrassing backyard where snooky and terrible <laughs> accents come from. Um, I, like, imagine this. From the Jersey Shore? Or? She goes to the Jersey Shore from Long Island. Oh, wow. So and, she's the worst in both words. Yes, exactly. She, she's an embarrassment to us all. And frankly, Jersey Shore is a net drain on our GDP. If you imagine all the resources that go into that and what it could be done. The other things, uh, we're talking about magnitude of 100,000 jobs or so being lost due to Jersey Shore. Um, but no, I'm, instead of that, I'm going to play to my uh, Asian stereotype. As you know, I am of Korean ethnicity and say that uh, I would like to overthrow uh, the Japanese government, take over Japan. Japan, after all, is an is 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 island nation. It is a series of islands, and it is a nation. And they need some help. Uh, I don't know if you guys heard about those crazy articles about uh, the, the, the people hiding away uh, old people's dead bodies to keep collecting their pension checks. Uh, that's kind of messed yes, up. And I the Japanese, Japanese population is decreasing. They're not making enough whoopee. Someone's got to go in there and encourage Japanese to, to get their more stippin' on and to stop uh, mummifying dead people and collecting their, their pension checks. Are you going? Are you going to go to Japan and revitalize them with your mighty seed, a la Genghis Khan? From whom? <laughs> from whom, as I understand, a significant portion of of people on the planet today uh, can trace their descendancy to. Uh, count me among them. 
Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> probably, statistically speaking, probably possible. Uh, no, I was thinking more on the lines of just going over there and uh, starting a Marvin Gaye cover band and using that approach. I think they could use some uh, you, let's get it on action. You know, that would work, too. That would work, too. You just go for what you believe in, hot dinner. Make that happen. <laughs> Speaking of hot dinner, John Parrish. <laughs> All right. I like this new nickname. Okay. So I've been trying to build up a little more my unpredictable bad boy rep, you know, the kind of person who does really crazy, unpredictable jerk things for no obvious reason. So I would like to take over the island nation of Haiti because I I think that would provoke a lot of discussion like, oh, man, Haiti's gone through so much recently. And now John Parrish is moving in and taking over their government. (laughs) That's kind of a dick move. (laughs) It's like, yeah, I'm kicking them while they're down. But. I would set up this elaborate shell game of, you know, nesting power structures such that once I was inevitably ousted from power, the only the only possible person to follow after me would be Wyclef Jean. <laughs> so because it was recently ruled uh, as of this past weekend by Haiti's Electoral Commission that Wyclef Jean could not or cannot legally run for president uh, in in Haiti. So I would I would I would make that possible if uh if I ruled the world, as it were. Although that's a, that's a People of Haiti, what up, what up, what up? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would, I would declare that from the rooftops. Excellent. Uh, I, um, I considered many islands, uh, including uh, Islands, the burger restaurant chain in Los Angeles, uh, <laughs> the island of Dr. Moreau, and uh, Isla de la Muerta from the Pirates of the Caribbean movie. But uh, I think I want, to, I want to overthrow Gilligan's Island, um, <laughs> for a couple reasons. One, there are pretty girls there, and two, they are inadequately defended. They don't have... <laughs> they don't have... The, Those are the two conditions. Those are the two necessary, necessary conditions. <laughs> they don't have the... Uh, yeah, no, like all, like all explorers before me, like Cortez and Columbus and... Uh, all, all the great conquerors. I uh, those those are pretty much the the uh, natural resources, if you will, and the um, the inability of the native population to defend themselves uh, against <laughs> my colonization. I just don't think they could withstand a uh, a, a long term siege from uh, from me. No lady can, <laughs> <laughs> though many have tried. Um, <laughs> All right, uh, so you know what to do. Uh, if you hear anything that you want to comment on, uh, email us at podcastedoverthinkingit.com or call or text at 203-285-6401. That's 203-285-6401. And if you don't, if you just listen to the show on iTunes and you never go on overthinkingit.com, uh, go, go to overthinkingit.com because we have gotten into, after the last couple of episodes, in the comments on the show notes on overthinkingit.com, there have been some great uh, discussions. There's been some great feedback and... Um, uh, stuff from the uh, stuff from the listeners, and we respond, and the listeners respond, and it's a great conversation. Um, we, uh, you know, and it's uh, it's like the podcast continues long after it's gone. Uh, so if during the week you miss your overthinking it podcast, uh, you can find it online on the website. I actually did go to a wedding this weekend, and I actually did uh, fall into a lake, but that is far less interesting than the Expendables. 
uh, the uh, the throwback action extravaganza. So, um, John, in our uh, in our overthinking it writers email list, which is always a party, uh, but it was particularly a party this this week because you uh, you advanced a uh, a hypothesis about um, the Expendables. Could you just lay out uh, the argument that you made uh, to us over email? Can you lay it out because I think it's going to be the basis of the discussion today. Sure. I'll kick us off. My theory is that The Expendables is about the the 80s uh, paying for paying for its own actions, whether you whether you see paying for in a good or bad way. I, I describe it as as the hawks coming home to roost because, A, it's a a couple different things. There's a very clear through line between people who are action stars in the 80s and people who are action stars in this movie. Uh, Stallone, Bruce Willis, Dolph Lundgren. Mickey Rourke, uh, etc. You get that. You get that whole crew there. B. It's it. The plot itself plays out sort of as the the thirty years later of an eighties action movie. It's it's these action. It's these heroes who are called back to an island that the CIA overthrew the government of, you know, in the eighties or nineties, and now have to and now have to sort of oust the leader who was put in place as a result of that. So it feels very much like the aftermath of. Of you know a movie like Commando or Rambo Two, where the heroes came in and they upset the power structure, and now they have to go back thirty years later and deal with the consequences of that power structure being upset. And and there's also a and there's also a third thing which I'll get into later. Is I think it's sort of tangential, and I might have heard or remembered it wrong. But I, those are those are the big two that I want to talk about now. It's it's it has the same it has the same tone as an '80s action movie. But given the fact that it ha- it stars primarily people who were big names in the 80s, who are now themselves much older than conventional action heroes would be, it seems like that's an obvious parallel they're trying to draw. The movie is at all points trying to remind us, hey, these guys were, these guys were heroes in the 80s, or these guys were big in very 80s-type movies, but this is a movie clearly set in the present day. Um. Now it, it's funny when I heard that it, the the immediate thing that I thought of was that they seem to be uh, uh, paying for the sins of the eighties or or you know I don't know the the hawks or the ravens or something. what is it on Stallone's tattoo it's a raven or the raven yeah so yeah, I, yeah, it's the- like uh, is coming home to roost sure absolutely and like they're dealing with the aftermath but um, it seems like no one has learned any lessons you know and this is this is uh, you know uh, driven home in a couple of ways one you know Mickey Rourke's uh, kind of loveless. A uh, series of of girlfriends, one after another, after another, after another. He never he never seems to grow up. Um, and and also that uh, the tactics seem to be exactly the same as in those nineteen eighties action movies when you were you know I don't know installing puppet governments in Central America or in uh, you know uh, East Asia or something like that. Right? Um, uh, you go in, you blow a lot of stuff up, uh, you leave chaos and destruction in your wake, and and you leave. You know, um, well, no, rather the difference is this time they left a woman in charge, so that'll that'll make it better. Yeah, <laughs> there's a uh, the great illusion of our day. <laughs> there, there, wait, is she in? She's not in charge. She's you know, I don't know. Uh, well, she's the only one left alive. So yeah, she's the only one in the, in the in the complex left alive. But presumably there are, there are a whole bunch of people in you know who are not in the complex after the whole thing is blown to kingdom come. Rather and, if. If they wanted someone else to be in charge, they would have shown them in the movie. She's the only other person from the island we meet. Ergo, she has to be in charge. I, well, yeah, I, I, I I'd say that so. your logic is pretty ironclad. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's Stallonean logic is what it is. 
Um, you know, Matt, you, you know what struck me as a, as a, a good uh, symbol for maybe the, the, the fact that they haven't learned anything is that they're sort of in this, this permanent state of uh, arrested development is uh, Stallone's tattoo that is never finished. Right. Uh, that, that he has this tattoo of the Expendables, which Mickey Rourke, uh, I believe in the, in the movie, he works on for about eight seconds and then stops. And it's a big joke uh, about how, you know, there's just, it's being uh, added to little at a time, but never quite finished. It's definitely a symbol of something, but I don't know what it is. And, and one of the things could be like, I mean, a tattoo is supposed to be this sort of permanent symbol of something. But then if you, if you never finish it, then it becomes this permanent symbol of the fact that, uh, you know, you're never done. You never commit. Uh, you never follow through with the things you started. Did you yeah. see? I mean, it reminds stuff? me. It re- I'm sorry. You go. I was going to say it reminds me of Penelope's funeral shroud in the Odyssey. Uh, because there is an element that if she ever finishes it, then she sort of has to give up on her resistance against her suitors. Almost as if if uh, if uh, someone finishes, the tattoo is finished of the raven and the skull and the expendables. It's a, sort of an acknowledgement that Stallone himself has sort of come full circle. And there's something that he has yet to do, right? There's something that remains to do and that he is continuing it and extending it past the point where it would naturally be finished with someone to do it in a sort of reasonable manner. It's almost like he's tricking us into letting him continue to make action movies. Um, it, it also it also works if we if we step outside and identify you know Stallone not just as a character but as himself as an acknowledgement of his age believe it or not because I think we actually we might have covered this on an earlier podcast or I was talking about it with someone else but in the the last Rambo movie that Stallone did uh, that was just called uh, Rambo or or John Rambo overseas. Uh, he he wore a shirt throughout the entire movie. He never went shirtless because he'd had S- Sylvester Stallone himself had had extensive tattoo work done, and it wouldn't have been consistent with his John Rambo character. So that's why he wore a shirt for the entire movie. So I guess you know showing his tattoos is a is an acknowledgement of the fact that he is no longer he is no longer the young character who he made famous. He is no longer John Rambo. He's no longer Rocky Balboa. He's now an older guy trying to forge a, a, a different identity. I mean, my favorite sign of Stallone showing his age in her, his latest round of successful movies is that he has love interests, but he doesn't kiss them anymore. And this was true in uh, Rocky Balboa and, uh, and in this movie as well, where there's this girl that he clearly connects with in some sort of like personal, emotional, and almost spiritual level. But he's never involved with her sexually because he's 63 years old. And she's like 25. Um, so, so, I mean, he has done us that favor by, like, not extending that part of the storyline, you know, to that extent. Uh, and I feel like that's sort of the most glaring difference to me. That yeah. his face never moves, but if that's they wanted kind of to, if this, hot shot. If this uh, the movie wanted to participate in the kind of psychological determinism that we often decry on the Overthinking It podcast and on the site, uh, it would have given Stallone an estranged daughter. Uh, in the movie, yeah. you know, and who uh, who the girl on the island reminds him of, and that's why he said it's just someone else's estranged daughter. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's uh, it's on hell from Dexter's estranged daughter. <laughs> <laughs> so, Although, I, I mean, you know what struck me about this is that for a movie where it seems like the elephant in the room is that many of these men are very much over the hill, and Stallone especially, uh, there are very few references to that. 
They're very devastated that Stallone is so old or Stallone should be retiring and nobody can believe he's still at it. I mean, Mickey Rourke and him uh, talk about a past that they had and uh, Schwarzenegger in his cameo as the, uh, you know, as, as the the rival uh, makes a couple jokes about his weight and his appearance. But nobody basically treats him like, wow, you're kind of old to be doing this. Um, and I think I think that's it's interesting that like it's not you know, the, the the script isn't written like you know wow these guys are like no nobody doubts these guys based on their appearance let's so just put let's, it that way let's um I mean uh, speaking of being old to be doing this let's let's kind of piece out from the evidence what exactly it is they're doing right they're sort of yeah. soldiers of fortune they're they're a par- quasi paramilitary wow that's a lot of prefixes let's just say they're a <laughs> sort of uh, paramilitary outfit for hire right right um, that uh, they're all seem to be ex military uh, but are you know have retired have aged out of that um, uh, right uh, they take jobs that involve I you know I don't know rescue they're they're kind of like Blackwater or whatever Blackwater is called now but not even that legit not even that sort of pretext of legitimacy right yeah yeah they're a mercenary they're like a real mercenary organization they're like a special forces unit that operates independently but it's weird because they don't have one of the things that's very eighties about it is that they have no logistical support at all and most of contemporary action movies there you're going to have somebody who's like the hacker at home who's going to make sure that they can get through the security system and stuff like that right so like the, like the person of, on the phone a like the julia styles born identity character yeah sure or yeah, yeah exactly like the or the uh the um south asian woman in um uh the unit right who was always there on her headset uh in yeah. you know in the command center or yeah, even morgan yeah, freeman's character to the most recent batman right Sure. Mm-hmm. But there, yeah, that's funny. There's no, uh, there was no computer oversight. This was a sort of non-technological movie. It was, a, it was a sort of brute force and machismo movie. Well, there was that one very, very oddly shot scene where after they get back from the island the first time, Stallone, Statham, and Lee. Oh, and by the way, I, I love how, how we've dropped the pretense that these characters have names other than the actors playing them. <laughs> I mean, at, at, at some point in the movie, there there's allusion to these people having names, but nobody refers to them as such, and you're not meant to think of them as such. You're supposed to think of Stallone's character as Stallone, Jet Li's character as Jet Li, etc. So anyhow, there's that one odd scene where Stallone, uh, Statham, and Lee are looking at like a computer call-up of Bruce Willis's character's you know, face, and like, oh, he's really with the CIA, and you know, shots of the island back in the 80s, and they're di- diagnosing like, oh, this guy... Eric Roberts, he was the one who originally put Garza in power, but now he's usurping their CIA money. And it's oddly shot because it's just computer frames and tight shots of their eyes. We, we never see their lips moving, so for all we know, and this probably did happen, they recorded it in in post-production but 30 days after shooting finished, and someone said, oh shit, we have no idea what's going on in the movie, we need to add some exposition. <laughs> Let's get everyone back in, throw some shots on screen, and just have you guys read these lines into a, into a mic, please. But you're saying that that's like one of the very few instances of technology being used. Yes, it is. As as far as I can tell, the the only one, and it was thrown in as a, probably an afterthought. Well, there's also there's that fun scene where Jason Statham gets a text message while they're having the Mexican standoff, which is kind of funny. Um, I don't. Was I the only one to notice that scene? It, well, that was cute. Uh, that was one of the few moments of brevity. 
in the movie that really worked. I gotta say. You mean levity I, or brev- like brevity? <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> moments of brevity. Okay. But I, we can talk about this maybe later. But I found the whole thing to be a rather joyless exercise. I was uh, not as happy of it as I really wanted to be. But uh, we don't have to go into that rat hole now. Really, I I thought it was. I'll I'll pick it up because I thought it was more entertaining than. And I don't want to start a discussion on Inception again, but I, I thought it was more entertaining than, say, Salt, for instance, which I saw a couple of weeks ago. I thought Salt was particularly grim, whereas Expendables had a bit of a lightheartedness to it. Right, exactly. There was a, there was a gallows humor uh, kind of about it, even even in the um, even in the name. Like, there's a kind of it, the name, the Expendables, uh, for your mercenary gang is is kind of a uh, an admission of uh, the idea that you're just cannon fodder, uh, that, you know, control will disavow knowledge, and that, uh, you know, that uh, you're kind of out there on your own. It's a kind of rueful uh, acceptance of your place in the world. Um, and I think that there's, there was a kind of sense of humor about what, what the movie was doing, which is that, like, we're here, to, uh, we're here to entertain you by blowing a lot of stuff up. Right. Okay, so, so let me backtrack. Joyless is clearly not the right, exactly the right word to use for this. Um, I, I guess that I'm just what's more of a comment of how I found that the uh, the witty banter uh, fell flat in a lot of ways. Um, in particular, I'm thinking of the uh, the scene where Jet Li and, and Stallone are driving the truck. And there's this extended sequence yeah. about um, about him being uh, short and how he needs more money and how it just it's just like, what am I watching? I was like, what? Like, was Stallone drunk when he was writing this dialogue? Yeah. I, I had a I had a similar reaction to the initial briefing where it's 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 one of the few scenes where all five or six of them are sitting around a room at once. It's Stallone, Statham, Lee, uh, Randy Couture, and uh, Terry Crews. Couture and Crews, by the way, whose names are never actually said during the movie. I had to go to Wikipedia <laughs> to find out what their characters are called. Uh, so they're all they, talking. They are called amazing things, by the way. <laughs> yes, I mean R- Randy Couture's name is Toll Road, apparently, <laughs> and he's yeah. and he's supposedly the team demolition specialist. Uh, hey, uh, Randy or Terry Crews's name is Hale Caesar, and he's <laughs> uh, I I don't know what he does, and and apparently Dolph Lundgren's character was the team sniper. Although really, all the all the characters we saw are equally competent at blowing things up and shooting things at great distances. So I don't things in the face. <laughs> I don't I don't know why they why they have roles, but anyhow, I'm, I'm getting sidetracked. <laughs> so there's that scene where there where Stallone is is briefing them all on the job, and Jet Li interrupts with that part about needing more money for his family, but no one really seems to buy that he has a family. And Randy Couture has that long tangent about being in therapy and being conscious about his cauliflower ear and it just re- it just read to me like a bad improv scene and <laughs> pete you can pete you can back me up on this because you're you're a more talented and experienced improv performer than i am but it's like a really bad scene where other pe- other players are offering input to the scene and other people are just completely dropping that input or ignoring it and steamrolling down like oh okay here's where i think the scene's gonna go i'm just gonna ignore you that's what it felt like. It felt like Jet Li and Randy Couture were improvising, and Stallone said, and then they just filmed that, left it on film, and then kept going down the direction of the plot anyway. I don't know why it was in there. It felt, it felt weak. It felt like that was the writer's afterthought of, oh, here's how we'll give these guys depth. We'll throw a, throw a dart at a wall. Bam. Okay, he's self-conscious about being short. Okay, bam. He's seeing a therapist. Boom. Done. Yes. Yeah. Let's get back to writing. 
Yeah, it's yeah, the, definitely. It's, I, it, it, it's it, the idea of having a personality quirk versus having a, a developed character. I mean, having a hook, having a gimmick, right? Right. See, when I direct improv scenes, um, I, I I would describe. I think you're dead on with the fact that it felt like a really bad improv scene. Um, I would describe those. I, I come up with a term recently, calling them perma moments. Um, and because it was, I was after a, an exercise I was doing with this group that I that I coach, where I had I told them to tell a story. Each person tell it one sentence at a time, and it was like, oh, like a, uh, there was a vampire, and like the vampire went to the store, and and so on, and, and then like, and then somebody said, and then this guy got a perm. And I sort of stopped them, and I was like, "What does the guy having the perm have to do with the rest of the story? Like nothing." And it's we're in we're halfway through the story. We're already in the second act of the story. Um, adding the fact that the guy has a perm at this point is taking us in a direction away from where we're going. It's confusing. Nobody else knows what's going on. So I was like, "We need to invade this island nation," and like, "But how are we going to do it?" And overthrow this government? Like, we don't know. I'm seeing a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> hey, can, we, can we pause for a moment and imagine Sylvester Stallone as an improv comedy director? Uh, as Sylvester Stallone's improv comedy night. Okay, okay, guys. What, what we need from the audience is a, is a non-geographic location and, uh, and an extremely explosive device. Okay. <laughs> yeah, one of my friends always used to tell stories about an improviser who every scene he was in would say, let's start a business. Or let's take it to Broadway. Uh, and that's what it is. See, when a character just sort of comes in with their stuff, like irrespective of what else is going on in the scene, like it really doesn't work very well. Like you have to have a reason to have these people talking about these things. Yeah, it's like the bunker where they're planning the map out is not the place to talk about your therapist appointment. So anyway. There, there was a great episode of uh, The Office where uh, Michael Scott mm-hmm. is uh, taking an improv class. And every scene that he's in, no matter what, he just pulls a gun on everyone else in the scene and forces them to lie down on the ground. Because <laughs> it's the most exciting situation you can get in, so why not make it happen? Yeah. Uh, and I feel like maybe Stallone would, would do something like that as well. And <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that wasn't that wasn't great. No. You know, one thing I one thing I wanted to well, mention. Um, yeah, yeah, you go first, Pete. Oh, I was just going to say um, there were two things that we were talking about, sort of the passage of time and the passage like the old style versus the new style. There were two things that really jumped out at me as signals that we've moved on to a, sort of a new era. Well, three things actually. Um, and the two, two of them kind of go together. One of them is that the style and fashion was like uncomfortably contemporary. Like Stallone wore one of those like little Wayne style plaid shirts. Like that wasn't like, it's not like what he wore in Cobra, right? Where he's like, or any of his other movies, he's like wearing this like weird chain with like the, the jewelry on it. And he's like decked out. Like he's some sort of like vague, like uh, cash money records, like backup dancer or something. Um, and, and like, and like Jason Statham is like riding a Tokyo drift motorcycle, which is also kind of funny because everyone else is riding Harleys. So that, that was the two things is like, there's this sense of style to the movie that's like imported from a Bow Wow vehicle, uh, and is like put peppered in, in like really moments where it doesn't, isn't really necessary. Uh, and then the other one was the wonderful fight between Randy Couture and Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh, which is like to me really spoke to the passage of generations in like the sort of the the how MMA has supplanted professional wrestling as the sort of like dominant uh, man groping sport uh, for for uh, 
scores. You're like the, the fact that Stone Cold Steve Austin is like literally lit on fire and then jump kicked. I think is that what happens? <laughs> <laughs> and then like he wa- he watches his body burn and you show him in like relief. Like that's the only reason he's in that movie. Like Randy Couture is not there to talk about his ear or the therapist. I, you I, know, but, I always um, thought, I always I thought th- that. Um, uh, I assumed that 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 moment, the the demise of Stone Cold Steve Austin, was actually probably in his contract and was negotiated. That is to say, no one can defeat me, no one can best me in single combat in the movie. But if they if they manage accidentally to you know uh, knock me into a pit of fire, that's okay yeah. if I die if I die from that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, oh, this man. was. Uh, the the Couture Austin fight was it's it's one in a list of examples I had of this movie being conscious of itself as a as an action movie sort of as a meta action movie. I mean, there's this, there's the conversation between Stallone, Willis, and Schwarzenegger, which had no real purpose in the plot other than to have Stallone, Willis, and Schwarzenegger on camera at the same time. And there was the there was the fight between Jet Li and Dolph Lundgren, which had Again, no real purpose in the plot other than to have a world-renowned martial artist and a world-renowned kickboxer have a fight with each other. And the, mm-hmm. the Couture-Austin fight was very similar. Like, as soon as you knew that Randy Couture and Steve Austin were in the movie, you knew they were going to fight. I mean, that there wasn't a way... Um, that there were, given the way the movie was... Given the reason the movie had for existing, there wasn't a way the movie could end without them fighting. That, that was mm-hmm. meta-necessary. So, and... It's inter- it's interesting to me that the movie would, you know, deliberately set up these parallels and play with the the real life importance of the actors portraying these fictional characters just to just to construe these fights. If you put a professional wrestler on the turnbuckle at the beginning of the movie, he needs to jump <laughs> off the turnbuckle by the end. Of it. <laughs> he needs to he needs to die in a pit of fire by the uh... yeah. That was pretty raw. There were some really weird, violent scenes, and then there were some scenes where it was like people died totally bloodlessly. Like, there were, like, old-school scenes where someone shoots and there's a flash, and then the person just falls down. And there were scenes where, like, people's heads were literally blown and chopped off, like, on camera. The first action like, scene, right? What? The first action scene where, where Dolph Lundgren uh, fires a quote-unquote <laughs> warning shot and just <laughs> obliterates the guy torso one up. Whoops. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, uh... Well, right. It did have kind of a a weird split personality about how explicit it wanted to be about about both the violence and also the. Did you think that the the waterboarding, the oddly sexualized? I, I shouldn't say oddly sexualized. The uh, uh, inappropriately sexualized. Yeah, but but uh, <laughs> frankly, the exactly sexualized exactly as expected uh, waterboarding scene, yeah. which was standing in for some sort of you know sexual violence. Um, uh, let, let's call it the, the, like the aqua mouth rape scene, right? Uh, was <laughs> not, yes, let's call it that. Cause that'll make it easier to talk about. <laughs> it shouldn't be easy to talk about though. It was, it was really sort of horrifying. It was heinous. Yeah. yeah it, it was, it was heinous. Um, and the, uh, right. And that, that like that we can show that. Right. But we can't show, uh, uh that, that some of the deaths are going to be sort of soft peddled. Well, I wouldn't accuse yeah, I mean, of soft pedaling violence, though. At the end of the day, I mean, just with the amount of blood and the, especially with the, when the guy uh, was it uh, Terry Crews brings out his his bang bang shotgun, where just bodies are just being torn apart left and yeah. right. Let's yeah. not forget that. 
You know, Pete, to partially answer your question about the movie Split Personality, this was a shot with, um, they were unsure whether they wanted to make it PG-13 or uh, R-rated because of the success of, like, let's say Die Hard 4 for a PG-13 audience. And it was sort of a, a late decision to, like, you know what, let's put in some moments of hardcore violence and just make it a full R. So, like, imagine this is, like, a PG-13 movie where they then, like, tacked on maybe 20 special effect shots at the end of just bodies being cut in half. <laughs> <laughs> hey, can yeah, we talk there's about... There's definitely, like... Uh, well, go ahead. Oh, yeah, can we talk about the waterboarding for a second? Is mm. this is this decidedly post-9-11 or post-war on terror type of scene? I mean, think about... It's a common depiction of torture in movies. It's, you know, the beating the crap out of someone. Maybe you got the electrocution. Those are ways that people get tortured in movies. I have never seen waterboarding depicted in a movie until this one. No, there's been there. There have been a couple recently, like uh, uh, the third born movie. Right. He was uh, he was. But this, was this after everybody was, in America learned what. So was this after everyone in America, like, learned much of their horror, what waterboarding was and that the United States does this? Yes. I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, a new addition to our our, voc- our movie vocabulary. Well, torture. right, and it's you know what, and movie vocabulary actually is exactly the right way to put it because there there are things. Um, there's actually there's a lot of shorthand in this movie, and it's not all very good uh, shorthand. You know, the the sort of biker stuff is is one shorthand for kind of ed- getting at getting at uh, what the characters are about without actually having fully developed characters. The the personality quirks about you know the short thing and the um, therapist thing is another, but uh, uh, you know, waterboarding has become a, a shorthand for like uh, this is this is a really bad guy. You know what I mean? This is a seriously yeah. bad guy, yeah. and not well, a person, not a person who is not a person who is uh, uh, you know sometimes engages in questionable tactics, but uh, ultimately in in pursuit of good ends. Um, like you I, know, I, I don't know some I, some things like it's a this is this is uh, this is meant to be. Uh, a marker. This is meant to be a, a signpost for how we are to take this character morally. Yeah, I don't know. It's a puppy I, I thought, killing moment. What? I, I thought it was an interesting return to a time when torture was something that the bad guys did. Because if you consider the success of Twenty Four or the movie Taken or a handful of other action movies of recent note, I mean, it th- there's been a a growing trend of. And to to omit any sort of political commentary, pro or contra, but there's been a growing trend of torture being something that the good guys can do if it's in the name of a, a greater good or if there's a ticking clock uh, pressing them onward. And so, you know, this this is one of the first action movies, no, not one of the first action movies I've seen in a while, but it's it's an interesting reversal of torture being something that only the bad guys do in this movie. There's no scene where the Expendables get, you know, a guard or a, a henchman get him under their control, and then beat information out of him. All the information they get, they get out of either, you know, a voluntary supply, like when Gunnar thinks he's dying and gives Stallone the layout of the palace, or, <laughs> or by... Which or is by, totally <laughs> implausible, by the way. Yeah. Which the movie also comments on. I mean, Statham and Stallone are in the cockpit flying <laughs> back, and Statham says, so he gave you the entire layout just like that? And so, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so torture apparently something bad guys do in this movie, and not something good guys do. I mean, there's a whole theme in the movie of violence against women too. Um, and did anyone else thought it was really a weird meta moment when when Eric Roberts says, "I have a problem hitting women," but Stone Cold Steve Austin, who's been imprisoned for spousal yes. abuse, oh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Oh, yeah. he doesn't have a problem hitting women. <laughs> 
it's like Jesus Christ. Well, <laughs> far over the top. Right. That that reminds me of uh, of an uh, observation that John had about uh, when uh, Dolph Lundgren's character is kicked out of the Expendables because he is quote unquote using, and of course Sylvester Stallone uh, very notoriously is using. I'm assuming pretty much everything. <laughs> a 64 year old man should not uh, look like he does. So well, I, I I'm going off of memory here. It was implied and pretty pretty substantially alleged that he was using steroids at some point, and I think it's safe to assume he was. Stallone has ex- and- Stallone has explicitly admitted to using human growth hormone HGH, which, yeah, which is not which is not in the same class of scheduled drugs as anabolic steroids are. I mean, we we associate the same way because baseball players and football players get in, get in the same kind of trouble for using it as they would steroids. But it's not, as I understand, as harmful to the human body. Although there are probably side effects. Yeah, I mean, it can it can promote cancers and it has a lot of bad stuff that you can do. So, yeah, but, um, it, it's it's yeah, but it's but, a but, different thing. But, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't recommend using synthetic HGH or whatever it is that they use. Um, yeah, but but the linky as you. As you say, it, it is it is another example of I think the the '80s dealing with the the consequences of its past. In that you know the the movie is full of character, or movie is full of people like uh, Stallone, Schwarzenegger. Uh, pro- I don't I don't want to say Terry Crews did because that's a uh, that, that's an unfair allegation. But you know, being a professional bodybuilder, it's at least possible that he used some sort of growth supplements to get to the size he has now. Uh, Dolph Lundgren probably. And then, you know, to have char- to have the good guys in this movie explicitly comment on the use of what I presume are steroids. It's never explicitly said that he's using steroids, but his behavior is consistent with the sort of roid rage that's associated with steroids. And he's a big guy, so it would it would make sense. But for all we know, it could it could just be methamphetamine. So what do we know? <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm sure he's just using all of them emotionally because um, <laughs> they need to they need to be less codependent, and that's the problem. Yeah, um, there was uh, there was one more observation I wanted to make quickly, guys. That uh, everyone in the Expendables has a sort of uh, uh, gnome day punch in the face. Uh, <laughs> we, we mentioned, um, we mentioned uh, Toll Road, uh, Hail Caesar. Um, that uh, Jason Statham's name is Lee Christmas, and then Stallone's yeah. is Barney Ross, which seems kind of like I mean, who names those up Barney as your sort of like um, mercenary name? So I, I googled it, and it turns out that Barney Ross. This may be a coincidence, but I I'm inclined to say it's not. Barney Ross was a boxer. He was a, a boxer in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, 1909 to 1967. Uh, and he was a he was a Jewish boxer. His dad was actually a rabbi on like the Lower East Side. Um, and then uh, he actually served in World War II and won a bunch of medals. And I, I mean, I think I think that Stallone obviously knows a thing or two about boxing. Uh, and I think you know not not only obviously played uh, you know Rocky, but has a is an aficionado of like the history of the actual sport. So I. I feel like it's not a random choice. I feel like I don't know. I, I I googled this and there's nothing to suggest. Like Stallone has not said in any interviews. Yes, I named my character after the Jewish boxer from the 1920s. But I, I if I had to guess, I would say that uh, that Stallone's character in The Expendables is supposed to be Jewish. Hmm. <laughs> that's, that's the best I can do, guess. 
That would explain why I won't pay Jet Li any more money, right? <laughs> oh. Oh. Sorry, no, I don't mean that. I'm sorry, that was mean. Oh. I apologize. What do we make of the of the the Jason Statham love interest with uh, with Charisma, Charisma Carpenter? Carpenter. Um, does I'm uh, just happy to see Charisma Carpenter getting work again? <laughs> yeah. Do, does it? Did there have to be a love interest in this movie, and she's it? Yeah, I I think that's pretty much it. I I think people would not have. As as you say, Fenzel, I think people would not have bought uh, Sylvester Stallone having a explicit romantic relationship with the with the general's daughter on the island. So, but there had to be some love interest, and I guess you know Jason Statham being the next biggest star in the movie, and all and also a, a good looking man in his own right. I, I guess it next fell to him. Star to Bruce Willis was in this movie. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, they were was in cameos. This. They weren't stars. They were cameos. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Jason yeah. Statham, yeah, but, but also, also the, the youngest person. Exactly, in the movie. that's that's what it is. It's he he's the one who you can imagine with Charisma Carpenter, right? Like that, uh, Mister Mister Crank himself. Yeah, <laughs> keeping his adrenaline. I mean, I don't know, as it were. Yeah, I mean, I saw that as I saw the movie. I, I couldn't help but read the movie a little bit as explicitly to the sort of disenfranchised. Uh, like unemployed men of the recession, right? Of like, like this is for older baby boomer age men who are like down in their luck or lost their jobs or like divorced their wives and are like frustrated and, and don't really see the world as giving them any opportunities and have that bleakness inside of them about their futures, right? And so you have this, this mirror of the Jason Statham character who's just made artificially a little bit younger just because he is. Um, and because uh, you do that sometimes. And he has like a real style relationship where like, he leaves for a little while, and his girl cheats on him, and he has no hope really to have much happiness with her. And he tries to get some redemption, but you know it's really not going to work out. Versus, like, we're on the island where you have this utopian vision, like this, not utopian, but this sort of suspended fantasy of your own efficacy, right? On the island, you can do anything. On the island, like, you have the beautiful Latina girl who wants, who wants to hug you and, and, like, that you can save, <laughs> right? Whereas in the real world, you have to fight some douche on the playground who, who, like, slept with your girl because you were away for a month because you never told her what you do for a living. You know, like, like it's sort of like the, the real world versus the 80s fantasy world. Um, but, you know, it's and I mean, I think that the rundown place, the tools place that they all hang out at, which is a, a dump, right? It's like an awful place. It's like full of sixty-year-old men who are all tattooed up. Like nothing against sixty-year-old men, but I'm like, I wouldn't want to necessarily hang out at that place. Um, you know, versus like you know the the place, the sort of town with the, the castles and the the kids playing in the streets and like the sort of romance and mystery. I don't know. Hey, they don't have a castle anymore because they blew it the frick up. Yeah. Which oh, was by the way, just a moment there. This comment that the, that that, that uh, castle or that uh, compound was probably the island's uh, most important historical and cultural asset, and they blew it to hell. Why do they do that? Like, why did they blow up the building? <laughs> yeah, and it, it, so it's, it's, it's like, no purpose. They killed everybody associated with the government in even a minor capacity. <laughs> well, that's, why yeah, did they need to blow up the building? Like, and it, it, I mean, that's it funny, seemed but, like a it seemed like a very it seemed like a very spiteful uh, job too. Because when you saw them planning the charges, they weren't planning them on on support pillars or key structural concepts. They're slapping them on like every window frame as they ran by. <laughs> like we're taking everything out. Yeah. Yeah. Overkill. 
But the well, yeah, and it's it hadn't everyone run outside at that point as well, yeah. right? Like, wasn't the whole army out in the patio, right? So that yeah. uh, blowing blowing the building up just served no tactical purpose. I mean, other hey, than hey, hey. Up- accounts payable was in there. <laughs> yeah. Other well, than, I mean, yes, uh, it distracted the, it distracted the people outside briefly, but I feel like there are other ways they could have done that. Yeah, right. and I don't think that's why they were blowing up the building. Hey, it's like get I a momentary distraction was, so they could run away. No back door on like a compound that large. They could have been like, maybe there's a window we could climb out of. <laughs> Pete, I, I think you're right on uh, with sort of the um, the this movie talking to kind of a, a generation that feels like it's gotten passed by. It makes me think of. Uh, the the films noirs that came out uh, that were released after World War II, where the idea was like men were coming back to America uh, from Europe, and uh, there was this there was this sense that like the women had not been faithful. You know what I mean? They'd been like Mildred Pierce and sort of g- gone and done their own thing and fooled around with the the rich playboy that you know she shouldn't have uh, have fooled. Uh, spo- spoiler alert. Yeah, sorry. Uh, shouldn't have uh, have uh, fooled. Yeah, spo- spoiler alert for Mildred Pierce. If you haven't seen it, uh, you haven't daughter- seen it by now. You missed your chance. Yeah, it's it's the daughter all along. Sorry, guys, but um, the. Uh, uh, the um the it struck me as kind of like the tea party of movies right where yeah. where it's kind of like this this sense of of uh we've lost something essential and we we have to take it back now whether whether you agree with that i don't want to open up that whole can of worms i guess i have uh, uh without really wanting to but like whether you agree with that politically or not there you you have to acknowledge that it is a force in the country at the moment this sense of um of uh, things not being what they what they once were, and maybe that goes to why the um, why all the guys have to be older, right? Because they're in touch with uh, a, a sort of a simpler earlier time when men were men and Americans were Americans, and we could install you know puppet governments in Central America and things like that. But I wanted to uh, the. Uh, I wanted to talk about Charisma Carpenter and actually also the the uh, Latina girl um, as well. There's there's no. Uh, sexiness in the movie right like stallone hugs her and that's because he's he's uh much older than her but um even with jason statham like we don't have a uh you know he's riding a motorcycle after all we don't have a top gun-esque you know take my breath away uh soft core you know lovemaking scene in in beautiful blue light or something like that right the the women in this movie seem to be a pretext for the men to fight each other uh, whether it's Jason Statham on the basketball court or the Expendables down in the in the island nation, you know what I well, mean. Well, if you cons- if you consider the '80s movies that this is meant to harken back to, like Rambo Two, Commando, Predator, uh, those those are all uh, Die Hard, uh, Die Hard Two. Those are all movies that have women in them, but don't have you know sex scenes or romantic scenes, except possibly at the very end in some cases. But there's no there's no consummation of any sort of relationship in those movies. I mean, the the women the women have the same role there. So I don't think it's I don't think it's unusual or I don't think it's new. Mm. Sure, fair, I mean it is enough. especially interesting because Mickey Rourke does give that monologue where he says that the only thing that will give him solace, the reason he quit being a mercenary, is because he wanted to die like for or with a woman, right? And like he didn't want to die alone, like or among men. 
that that somehow it would give his his life more purpose if like it was with some trashy girl he picked up at a bar. Um, apparently, uh, and that's like an interesting because that that harkens back to some of the stuff that well, back when I was um, getting into Robert Bly stuff and and talking about you know yes there's a lot of of rightful guff that's thrown in the direction of like quote unquote fifty style masculinity in the sense that it oppresses women and all this other stuff and it does but one of the things that it does do is define the success redemption transcendence and happiness of a man metaphysically as the, in the context of the women he's able to like support protect. Or, or do for, right? Like, John Wayne has to help the girl, right? It's not enough for John Wayne to just, like, beat the bad guy or, like, save the town. It has to be the girl, too, who needs him. And that's what gives it sort of spiritual purpose, because women are these, like, these, these, meta, these like, metaphysical spiritual forces of, like, purity and, and that are deserving of your protection. And that's how you can prove that you're a man, is by helping a woman or being with a woman. I think that that's, I, that's an awfully generous reading of that, right? Like, uh... Uh, I don't know, like uh, the 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 women. I I mean, the, I think that this is a film that partakes in in uh, the homosocial, right? Where the women are kind of a uh, the, the women are kind of a pretext for the men to sort of play their games with one another, you know? Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't think that's all in this movie. I think that Mickey Rourke is like harkening back to that tradition. Sure. When he gives that monologue, yeah, yeah, but it's not really in this movie so much. Um, that monologue seemed kind of out of place to me. Didn't yeah, it? it was like it was much. I, I don't know if I want to use the word better, but like it seemed like it was it was copy and pasted out of a different screenplay. Mm-hmm. The sort of one about watching a woman commit suicide in Bosnia. Um, yeah, <laughs> it was like a caliber that the, the same movie, which ends with like Jason Statham trying to do a limerick, but somehow it, it takes a different poetic form than a limerick usually does. Yeah. <laughs> which was an inexplicable choice because it's not like it gained anything from extending its length. It didn't make any sense. It's it's also, awful. Like, I feel it's like also- there was an earlier version of the screenplay in which like uh, Jason Statham's character was known for poetry. Like you know, <laughs> would always sort of like recite poetry before killing a lot of people. Um, and then that was all cut out, and so it just became this complete non sequitur. It's also it's also a very odd note to end the film on. I mean, they've you know they've they've triumphed over this corrupt government. They've saved the day. They maybe learned a little something about themselves, and they're all back at the at the tattoo shop, you know, clinking beers and having a good time. And Jason Statham, you know, sort of drags the suspense out in this very poor way by telling this awkward rambling poem and then flings a knife at this target and hits dead on and the movie's over like yay i guess that was the the high point that was what we'd waited all movie to see jason statham tell a poem and hit a target with a knife <laughs> that, it's like that a song is... just ending on the root chord without setting it up with any sort of cadence at all it's like blah, 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 blah. boom <laughs> so, so I, way, I guess go, go ahead Blinky I was just wondering is there this is about the presence of Dolph Lundgren in that final scene is there anything <laughs> you could possibly do that would cause Sylvester Stallone to not want to be your friend anymore <laughs> yeah they seemed awfully cool with that like hey dude you did try and, and kill all of us at one point or another and you did sell us out to our enemies but hey you know whatever like he brought in a whole team of assassins. It was like it was it was very in a way I really liked it because it sort of harkened back to these eighties action movies in which like nobody will die no matter what and everyone will recover from the wounds no matter how obviously fatal they are. But it yeah. did seem sort of like there's gotta be a point at which you're like Good luck. 
Dolph Lundgren. Um, <laughs> your life together, but we don't really want you getting drunk with us at this point. Hail and farewell. <laughs> I think this is also uh, goes back to sort of the Tea Party narrative, where um, you know if this guy messes up, he doesn't get fired. He gets, you know, he's, he's still kept on the job, you know, like uh, this yeah. is the anti, you know, uh, corporate boss man overlord who just kicks employees to the curb. No, that's not how the expendables work. They take care of their people. Exactly. But what no matter how dysfunctional or useless they might be. Right. Or how like obscenely high their, their pension obligations will be. But that's another podcast for another time. <laughs> <laughs> Why does Jet Li need the money? <laughs> like, did they ever establish that? It's this weird sort of joke where he keeps talking about his family and then eventually admits that he doesn't have a family. So presumably he's just really greedy. He just likes money. That's another terrible improv scene. That's a terrible improv scene right there. Right. Like, I need $5 for my family. You need $5 for your family? I thought you didn't have a family. I don't have a family. <laughs> like, like Pete, to be perfectly honest, I thought the punchline was going to be that like he's giving the money to some sort of a charity or he's like supporting. He's he's doing something worthwhile with it that like he doesn't want to admit because he's too nice a guy. I mean, like yeah. as it is now, all you can all you can gather from it is that like he wants more money than any of his friends, and he's willing to lie to their faces to get it. Yeah. Like, like, he takes care of a bunch of cats, and he needs to feed them, or something like that. Yeah, it would be something like that, where he has a hobby that he doesn't want yeah. anyone to know about, and it's kind of sweet and worthwhile, and Sylvester Stallone will give him more money. Um, yeah. But, like, he, he couldn't come out and say it. But I think, like, maybe that was another part that was also cut from the screenplay. I mean, I think, the, I think the explanation is just as simple as, like, playing to crass Asian stereotypes of, uh, uh, like, money-grubbing Asian stereotype. And I don't say that just to, you know, as, as I oftenly do joke about... Asian stereotypes, that, I, that's the only explanation that I have for this. I, I don't really see how a character named Ying Yang would be, uh, would be racist at all. <laughs> what? So, the character's name is Yin Yang? Yeah. yeah like, are you kidding? Jet Li gets a huge short trip in this movie because we're talking about action stars of the 80s and 90s, like, and everybody's like, oh, it's Stallone, you know, oh, you know, we got all these guys. Dolph Lundgren is in it. Jet Li is a huge, huge movie star. Like, huge movie star from the 80s and 90s. You know, like, like a really great action star, sort of inimitable. And, like, and he doesn't get the cred in, either in the movie or in, like, the talking about the movie that the other huge, uh, the other huge action stars do. Uh, and that's kind of unfortunate, because I, I would have liked this movie to sort of say, like, build a bridge between, like, Hong Kong action movies and Hollywood action movies, and so that the old Hong Kong star has something in common with, like, the old Hollywood star, and then they can talk about it. But no, in fact, the old Hong Kong star is, like, a minor character who has no reason to exist, and her no, and everything that he says, he takes back later for no reason. Like, it's, it's just, it's ridiculous. So if we... Can, it's a missed if- opportunity. If we can talk about if we can talk about casting for a minute and and the the racial aspect of casting, there was a, a really interesting interview of uh, Danny Trejo uh, that the the AV Club did a few months back. Which, if you haven't read, I recommend highly on its own route because a Danny Trejo is the source of some of the most incredible anecdotes about acting I've ever read. Like they're all phenomenal stuff. Just harkening back to the fact that Danny Trejo is in fact a, an ex convict and has been has portrayed ex-convicts many times with a, a great deal of veracity as a result. Uh, very similar to it. That's the word I want. Uh, but B, 
According to Trejo, and I've never seen Stallone comment on this, Stallone came to Danny Trejo uh, and wanted to cast him in The Expendables in order to bring in the Latin audience. So apparently when Stallone was pitching this movie, uh, you know, he, he went out and, and got Trejo's uh, agreement to participate. So, I, so presumably he could then go back to producers and say, yeah, we've got Danny Trejo signed off. That'll bring in the Latin audience. And then once the movie was actually greenlit, Stallone never called him again. So Treo's claim, and I have the interview up here, is, quote, so I was in The Expendables all the way up until the time they started casting. I'm not in The Expendables. That's one of Hollywood's ploys to, how do you say it? They have this huge cast, and then all of a sudden, when it comes time to cast, the people that actually raise money aren't in it. Close quote. So that, that well, A, that's interesting, it's all right. And B, it sort of makes you wonder about the inclusion of people like Randy Couture, uh, Steve Austin, Jet Li... I mean, it is Jason Statham. I mean, it, it's yes, it's interesting, but at what point does it cross over into the, the the mercenary attempt to bring in more demographics than you know stay true to the vision of <laughs> the vision of a ridiculous '80s action movie? Hmm. I mean, I guess the point where it gets that way is when you cast Beyonce. <laughs> you cast Oprah. You cast Oprah, in. and then you—that's when you go over the top to bring in demographics. Oh, Whoopi Goldberg. Um, I'm Fox. Yeah, it's, it's funny they would spread the field to everyone but half the half the planet. Everybody <laughs> but half the planet is invited to see this movie. Uh, <laughs> so. uh, the, the other notables who weren't in the movie: uh, Steven Seagal, right? Right. Uh, I, I read Van somewhere Damme. that. Right, that the two of them uh, were at some point supposed to be in it, but something happened along the way. Again, not not confirmed, not verified, but those are two obvious. Well, admissions. I read I read yeah. something Stallone saying, uh, uh, intimating that they didn't want to, um, they didn't want to get beat in the movie, you know. Which is oh yeah, like there's not enough room for everybody to be a good guy, and Steven Seagal doesn't want to get his ass kicked by Randy Couture. Yeah, I, I think something like that, and that that uh, this is what led me to think that the uh, the Steve Austin the Couture Austin fight was uh, negotiated. That it, he he couldn't win on the merits. You know, he had to win on the um, he had to win on the uh, on the on, on the technicality on the technicality on the fire pit technicality. <laughs> well, which which is Wesley Snipes was supposed to be in the movie, but they couldn't get that to work. Um, and that would have been awesome with Wesley because Wesley Snipes is an underrated action star. His his movies are so good. He's very good. And that's an interesting yeah. rumor regarding Seagal though, because no, he, he never actually served time. But that's an interesting rumor regarding Seagal because he he plays a a bad guy or at least the henchman of a bad guy and presumably loses a fight in the upcoming Danny Trejo movie Machete. Mm. Like there are several scenes of him fighting Danny Trejo in the in the trailer and. I, I can't see any way that Seagal wins that fight because it's it's Danny Trejo's movie. Which was, by the I way, was like a, Seagal uh, lives to fight a day. There was a trailer. Yeah. Uh, Machete was a trailer in uh, in The Expendables. Another trailer was the um, M Night Shyamalan uh, stuck in an elevator movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I commented. I commented. I commented on this on a previous podcast. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan's name comes up on the screen. And everybody laughs. That happened, that happened in, in my, my theater too. Yeah, that happened in my <laughs> theater too. <laughs> Every movie theater across America, and then Shella's name comes up, and it's like the, the there's like a wall of sound that just hits the movie screen. And tell you. <laughs> I don't know, maybe maybe Boston audiences were a little more restrained, or at least when I saw it, because there were just a few snickers and smartass comments behind me, but not but not the wall of laughter that, that you guys described. 
That guy's way past his expiration date, right? No, full on, full on sold out theater laughing at uh, M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good um, to hear. Well, maybe we'll leave it there. If you uh, want to laugh at us uh, on the Overthinking podcast, you can email us at podcastoverthinking.com or call 203-285-6401 or text 203-285-6401. Uh, drop by the site uh, where we have a great uh, – we usually have a great discussion after all the episodes. It's, uh, you know, it's really cool that the community around this podcast has uh, sort of coalesced and that uh, everyone thinks about it and, and writes in their own contributions. Uh, what site that is that, you ask? Why? It's www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it, it probably doesn't deserve. There once was a man named Rather. Who was known to go on a bit and blather. He was good with the ladies and like movies from the 80s. But if you were going to put him and me in a bus for a long weekend drive, <laughs> I'd say I'd rather n- not. <laughs> and, and it's the boys nice. are back in town. The boys are back in town. <laughs> <laughs> You dick.